welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 148. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tara and Jack. Now, once again, we do have a Q&A episode lined up for you and did just want to put out a little reminder that we do do these Q&A episodes every single week and we usually put out Instagram question polls over at the Bodybuilding Dietitians on Instagram. So if you ever do want to get your questions in, make sure to follow us at the Bodybuilding Dietitians over on Instagram so you can see our stories, ask us any questions during the week, or if you do miss the question poll, always feel free to slide into our DMs and ask some questions there, which we can always flag and then answer during these podcast episodes. So Jack, let's get into this first one. It says, what is your best advice for tracking meals out? Great question. So there's a few things to consider. And first of all, I'll be the one who says it, but do you need to track when you go out for a meal? Mm. It's not always mandatory. It depends on what you're trying to achieve. Like for example, if I was to go out for a meal right now, I probably wouldn't really feel the need to track because... I'm eating a lot of food and I'm more likely to undereat than overeat. Mm-hmm. And while I think it's, I'll still be aware of like the amount I should probably be eating, I'm not going to rigorously track like how much protein, carbs, and fats I think will be within that meal. It'll just be a rough calorie goal, which yeah. I guess to be fair is a form of tracking. Yeah, I think that's a great point to make in that you don't have to be super pedantic about the exact number of macros, the exact calorie amount, but still take into account that you're consuming some energy at mm. that mealtime. Yeah, and obviously people who might have more stringent goals at this point, it's more appropriate for them to be a bit more rigorous with their tracking. So we can certainly provide some inspiration in that element mm-hmm. and potentially working backwards might be a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Because you and I have both been in situations before where perhaps we've been in a dieting phase and a social occasion rises up that's going to involve food and we can't exactly just say no. There's certainly been cases where we have said no and perhaps brought our own meals or eaten before or after, for example, when the pressing timeline is very specific for when we need to be in condition for, like in a prep and the goal is very, very specific and very serious to us. But if you're just in a dieting phase, like if, for example, in the middle of your improvement season or something like that, or it's more of a lifestyle goal, I think it's actually really important that every once in a while you are engaging in these sort of social events and eating out because if anything, it actually allows you to practice all of the skills that you're learning through tracking your food because 95% of the time, if you're always weighing food to the gram yourself and you understand the macronutrient composition of different foods and what certain serving sizes and portion sizes look like, then what better opportunity to be able to use that knowledge to your advantage to kind of make a very educated guess. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, certainly. And I kind of relish the opportunity to eat out. And I remember in the past, it certainly provided, I'm talking like maybe five years ago now or six years ago. But back then I was a little bit anxious about eating out. But now I kind of relish the opportunity to enjoy some different food. And I think of it from a nutrition standpoint as an ability to get some more variety and Mm -hmm. and have some different things that I might not usually have. Yeah, certainly. 
But let's say, you know, we both have clients, right, who they're perhaps in a dieting phase themselves, but then a social event arises and they're like, hey, how do I prepare for this? So there certainly are some tactics that you can put in place. And certainly I think planning backwards is usually the best port of call. So most restaurants these days, they do have their menus online. So if you do want to be well prepared, what you can actually do is you can look up the menu online, decide what you want to eat in advance, and then estimate what the relative protein and calories for that meal would be. You and I usually recommend to go off just protein and calories for meals out rather than being very specific about, all right, this is exactly 20 grams of fat and 53 grams of carbs. Giving yourself a protein and a calorie goal is probably going to be a best way to do it. And then putting that into your MyFitnessPal and then planning back for your other meals from that social meal out. Mm, Certainly. Yeah, that's Definitely probably the most common tactic that I recommend. And I think that's a fairly safe method to use. It's quite stress-free and you don't have to spend too much time doing that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would always probably veer toward overestimating rather than underestimating with restaurant food, particularly if you're giving yourself a calorie goal. Even if the meal probably only is going to be 500 calories, I'd give yourself a little bit of leeway, maybe push it up to 700 because from experience of working in a restaurant myself, I just know that there are a lot of hidden calories that some people don't assume are in some meals. So I worked in a Thai restaurant for many, many years, and I just know that in stir fries, they aren't just adding one or two tablespoons worth of oil. You know, they're putting their big ladle into the oil pot. They're probably putting like 10 tablespoons worth of vegetable oil into a cashew nut stir fry. Or for example, if you order something like coconut rice, you might be like, ooh, it's probably just jasmine rice with a fragrance of coconut milk, right? I made that stuff myself. I can tell you it's full cream coconut milk and there's also a buttload of white sugar in there and then you sprinkle a bunch of deep fried onions on the top. (laughs) Or like pad thai, man. Have you ever had pad thai? Yeah, many times. Oh, it's freaking delicious. But I'm telling you, I've seen with my own two eyes the big wok of like peanuts and the pad thai paste. My chef poured a five kilogram bag worth of table sugar into this big wok of pad thai. Wow. That's before they add the chicken and the noodles, you know? So <laughs> there's these sneaky little things, eh, that are definitely in restaurant food. So that's why I just tell people, hey, overestimate rather than underestimate. Yeah, and I think some other things to consider other than calories is also like what else you're eating for that day as well. So naturally, if you might be trying to save some calories for the evening meal, assuming you're eating out at dinner, then prioritizing your fruit and vegetables in the meals prior would be useful because you might not get in an abundance of fruit and veg in that evening meal, but also your protein as well. Like protein and calories are the two most important macronutrients probably for building muscle as well as losing body fat and maintaining muscle mass. So ensuring that if you know your evening meal isn't going to be amazingly high in protein, then making sure that you're having a decent amount through the earlier portion of the day as well. Mm -hmm. And just making sure that you're trying to still get in a few servings there just so you have even protein distribution throughout the day too. And like obviously hitting your protein, hitting your fruit and vegetable quota, staying well nourished throughout the day is great. But 
also just falling back on you want to feel good the next day too. Like you still want digestion and regular digestion to be in check because there's nothing worse than, you know, just having a very abnormal day of food. And then just, you kind of feel out of sync in the days following. Mm. Yeah. We've been there before. Yeah. (laughs) But there's obviously a heck of a lot of different ways to go around it to track or not to track. That's totally up to you. But I think it's still important to acknowledge that obviously everything that you eat is generally going to have some calories in it. And if your calorie budget is lower, I'd probably recommend then going toward those foods that are probably easier to track. So for example, if you're going out for breakfast, probably opting for something that you could more accurately estimate. So for example, two pieces of rye toast with two poached eggs and some fruit and a coffee on the side sort of thing as a breakfast rather than ordering the big stack of waffles with hash browns and bacon and you're like yolo (laughs) Mm. but i mean yeah like that's obviously that's quite energy dense in itself and plus it would be hard to track but even something like a breakfast omelet would be a little bit more difficult to track Mm. as well like things that sure a breakfast omelet is very healthy Mm. and nutritious but is it easier to track or is yeah. it worthwhile? Because we have to remember that chefs don't give two flips, guys, about how many calories are in the food. They want it to be delicious. And they want you to come back and order their food again because it tastes really good. I think that's probably in a chef's best interest is to retain their customers and have them coming back because their food is absolutely scrumptious, not necessarily being like, oh, Jenny only opted for 400 calories for this breakfast, so better not cook her omelet in some extra butter sort of thing. So that's why I just do think it's better to overestimate rather than underestimate because if you were to prepare a meal by yourself at your house, so let's say you were to make yourself a chicken cashew nut stir fry, you'd probably have a bunch of fresh vegetables in there, some chicken breast, and maybe add like two teaspoons worth of olive oil and throw in like 20 grams of cashew nuts. That would be a nice cashew nut stir fry at home. But if you were to go out to a Thai restaurant, just acknowledge that they're probably using a lot more oil to cook that meal. They're probably using a lot more cashew nuts. It's probably not chicken breast. It's probably chicken thigh. So whatever it may be, just overestimate because things like oils, things like sugar, things like salt, all those highly palatable foods, when they're combined, they make foods absolutely delicious. They're, They're very cheap. They're very cheap too. Hey guys, just a reminder that we offer coaching services, which you can find on our website by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians on Google or via the show notes below. We coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. Also, I guess if you were to just go out to a meal and you wanted to roughly estimate what the calories were in that meal, my best suggestion would actually be pick the most energy dense foods within that meal and then estimate those individually on my fitness pal. So let's say that you went out and you got a Caesar salad. What I would recommend is probably trying to track the chicken individually, estimate the Parmesan cheese, estimate the croutons, but I wouldn't go like estimating lettuce and estimating cucumbers and tomatoes. Like I would focus on the big ticket items and the very low energy dense foods. I'd probably just let those be. That would probably go the same for like, a pizza, I would roughly estimate like 
a pizza what, base. What sort of person would you? Because this still seems like some hardcore tracking to me. Like hardcore. <laughs> would you would you recommend this for the like a general diet, or is this like sort of delving into comp prep specificity? Mm. It just depends on how much you just want to be mm. in the know. And sometimes you're just curious too. Because like you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that yourself, would you? Like if you went out to dinner right now? No, well, I did it on the weekend because I actually went to my parents' house for my mom's birthday and we made homemade pizzas there. Mm-hmm. And we had like some spinach wraps and we had some salsa and we had prawns and chicken and cheese and plenty of different vegetables. And I just estimated the big ticket items like the spinach wrap, like the prawns and the chicken, like the cheese. But I wasn't like, ooh, is my spinach 30 or 40 grams? Mm. Or how much did these tomatoes weigh? How much did this capsicum weigh? So I roughly estimated that because I had that meal in the middle of the day. And obviously the next day I had a big ass leg session. So I'm like, well, I don't want to under eat today. I still want a good idea of how much food did I eat. And that's why at nighttime I had to have some sandwiches instead of a salad. Cause I was like, otherwise I'm only going to hit 250 grams of carbs today. And I usually hit 400. Mm. So I think it's in terms of the frequency as well. So mm. like people like you and me, we only eat outside maybe once a month, I would mm. say. And you got to think about the error there. Like even if we get the error way off and like I either overeat significantly or undereat significantly, it doesn't really matter. It's once mm. a month. But for people who go out regularly, like two or three times a week, it's then a lot more important for them to have a much higher accuracy of Mm. how they do things. So using my approach and kind of just having an educated guess might not be accurate enough for people who buy lunch out every day. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. So of course, each their own. But uh, I think it's always it's nice to track just out of curiosity if you want to know what the numbers are. And just also, if you know from experience, you're like, oh shit, like if I do under eat today significantly on my carb quota by over a hundred grams and I've got a big training session tomorrow, I'm pro- I might not perform as well mm. in that training session. I don't want to sacrifice that. But also you can use that to your advantage too. If you're in a dieting phase and you're like, well, I actually haven't hit my calories, but I actually feel pretty satiated as long as I hit my protein, fruit and veg for the day. Okay. Well, I'm feeling pretty good. So Maybe I'll just slightly undereat today. And who knows if that meal was actually more energy dense than you thought, everything might have actually balanced out in the end. <laughs> yes. Well, a lot of nuance discussed with this question. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. So Jack, this question says, is the bodybuilding stage slippery from all of the tan and oil? Well, it depends what stage you go to, but in our experience, no, like it's not slippery at all. Mm-hmm. And It's not like you're dripping with tan and oil. You don't put tan or oil on the soles of your feet. So yeah, there's, it's not slippery. Um, And even if it was like a little bit of slip is actually kind of nice for the bodybuilders in their transitions. You can kind of turn on your foot as opposed to being stuck to the ground. So yeah, nothing to worry about in that respect. Uh, You guys go on first thing in the morning, Mm. but then all of the female competitors come on after you. And the majority of the female competitors are wearing heels. So (laughs) I don't know if uh, you guys getting down and doing your classic poses on your knees and stuff like that is super helpful for a chick trying to go up there and flaunt her stuff in little stilettos. Mm. Yeah, I can't comment on that. I've never been in stilettos, so (laughs) I don't know what it would be like. No, but uh, as at the same time, like we've competed on various different stages and some stages are that just like 
flat ceramic flooring, similar to like the flooring that you'd probably have in a group fitness studio at mm. a gym. But for example, at the Sleeman Center in Chandler, that stage flooring is actually very, very thin carpet. So it's not actually the super... Absorbs all the oil. Yeah, so it wouldn't be as slippery, for example, if someone just got tan and canola oil all over the stage and then someone came out to walk on it in their heels. But I think that's actually a really important point to make that for competitors, particularly girls who are spinning around and doing all their stuff in little stilettos, it is important to actually practice your posing on different types of flooring. So for example, practice it on that very, very flat flooring that you would have in a group fitness studio, but also get used to what it's going to feel like practicing your posing on very thin carpet too, because probably you don't need to do it on grass or dirt though. No, you don't. Or concrete. Let's hope you're not doing some weird bodybuilding show <laughs> outside or like at the beach trying to spin around in the sand. But of course, <laughs> if your routine as a girl, you know, people really try to jazz it up and add all this finesse and girls do spins, girls do little kicks. I know from experience that feels very different when you're sliding around on a flat surface compared to if you get your the tip of your heel stuck in a little bit of carpet. So be prepared for that. So it's good to practice your posing on different flooring. And also Have just- Have you ever tripped on stage? No, I've never tripped on stage. Thank gosh. <laughs> that would be, I think that's a nightmare for most competitors to actually fall over. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's not a reoccurring nightmare for guys, of course, but- mm -hmm. I think it's normal, usually have those reoccurring dreams in the last few weeks of prep about something going wrong. Mm. I know for me, it's usually just getting up on stage without conditioning. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's usually a nightmare as well. But I think for, especially for the girls, like for fitness and sports model, it's always really nice because they usually have sports model before the fitness and sports model because there's so much crossover between the competitors. You go out there in flat shoes, which it's very unlikely you're going to trip in flat shoes, man, unless like your shoelace is undone or you're just like really gumby or something mm. like that. Someone leaves down a banana peel or something. <laughs> yeah. Bit of Mario Kart going on here now too. But you go out there in flat shoes and you just like shake off those nerves and you just get excited and you get that feel for the stage. Then once you put on your heels afterwards, you're, you're ready, you know, you're, you're, you're a lot more calm, you're a lot more confident. So I think it's almost like you're less likely to go up there and trip. But I think it's just really important to know what to expect on show day in general. So if you know the venue that you're actually going to be competing at, try to like understand like what is the flooring on that stage? Is it gonna be a flat surface? Is it going to be carpet? If you have the opportunity to actually understand what to expect up on that stage, but even that, like before you compete for the first time, make sure that you actually go to a show and actually watch a show and know what to expect. Yeah, that's probably the best advice of all. Mm -hmm. Just be prepared and know what to expect. And if you can get to a show, especially from the same federation and at the same venue, then you're, you're doing well. Yeah, because I know that you and I did that before our very first season because we competed season A 2018 for the first time. I remember going to the season B 2017 ICN show and just watching the competitors up there and really catching that bug and being like, wow, we can do that too, mm. which was super exciting. But it's just 
it's so beneficial to actually know what to expect. Like, how is the MC going to talk on the mic? And how are the competitors actually expected to walk out on stage? And how do they respond to the instructions that they're given? Where do they stand? Like, rather than just showing up on comp day with no clue what to expect, it's so remarkably beneficial. So I highly recommend that if people get the opportunity, go and watch a show. And then also, if you have the opportunity and you've got some friends competing in another season, try to actually get a backstage wristband so that you know what to expect backstage as well. I think that's another huge advantage too. Not just backstage, like where people get their hair and makeup done and get their dream tan and eat a bunch of rice cakes, but even in the marshalling and the pump up area as well. Yeah, I think the more prepared you are, the better. And the more that'll help eliminate any nerves, just like anything. So if you're able to know the pump up system, the marshalling, what it's like backstage, then the more the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's no doubt that just being calm, cool, collected, level-headed on show day, that's certainly a huge advantage because you don't want to be running around saying, oh gosh, how long till I'm on stage? Or what should I be doing? Or like, should I be eating now? Should I be drinking now? Like you just want to be totally chilled out in your zone. You know what you need to do. And it's really going to reflect on how you present yourself on the stage itself, the physique that you bring, and just how you feel throughout the entire experience. You want to have a really freaking good day. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our Instagram and YouTube channel. So make sure to go over to those platforms and search The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. All right, well, let's move on to this last question. So this one says, what should meal timing be after a workout? Yeah, so I think a lot of people stress out about this unnecessarily. And we usually give that six hour window between your pre-workout and your post-workout. So let's say you eat breakfast at 8 a.m., then you would want to train and eat your post-workout meal six hours after that, Mm -hmm. which is a very long time. So 2 p.m. At like, yeah, at the latest, (laughs) eh? At the very latest, yeah. So ideally, sooner isn't necessarily better than later, but you don't want to be eating at 2 p.m. when you could eat at like 1 or Mm -hmm. 12. Yeah, so... I think the recommendations are to have at least four to six hours between your pre and your post-workout meal, just to ensure that you're well-nourished, well-energized, your spike of muscle protein synthesis before and after your workout, you're recovering for that workout, you're well-fueled for that workout, the whole shebang. But that four to six hour window, I think it highly depends on two things. One would be the type of food that you're eating and how how fast digesting it is. So for example, if you're having a whey protein shake and two pieces of white toast with some Vegemite on it pre-workout, you're probably going to need to eat closer to four hours after Mm -hmm. that meal than six hours, unless you just really have no appetite cues in the slightest compared to if you were to have a big bowl of oatmeal with yogurt and fruit on top and a bunch of nuts and seeds, that would probably satiate you much longer than that four hours too. Mm. But apart from just the type of food that you're eating pre and post-workout, I think it also is heavily dictated by the phase that you're in. So for example, whether or not you're in the improvement season and you're in a very well-fed state, or if you're like in the depths of prep and you aren't on the highest amount of calories, and you are quite hungry 
the majority of the time. And I just remember on the Revive Stronger podcast, I'm pretty sure it was Chris Baccarat a few months ago. He's another athlete and coach over in the US, I believe. They were actually having this discussion on rate of digestion and meal timing in a prep versus the improvement season. And it's something I never thought about the way that they described it until I listened to that podcast. But I know that I've certainly experienced it and I think that you have as well. When you are in a dieting phase, it's almost as if like you eat a meal and you have this urgency to train much sooner. It's like you need to put that food to good use sooner rather than later and then eat your second meal sooner rather than later. So for example, you and I might have breakfast around 7 a.m., finish around 7.20 or so, and then we're like, okay, we want to be to the gym by 8 a.m. when we're in the depths of prep. Mm. Otherwise, if we push it to 8.30, 9, which is what we do now in the improvement season, we still have our breakfast around 7 a.m., but we don't usually start training closer till 9 a.m., then we're just too hungry during that training session. And that training session isn't very pleasant. And it's almost like you hit a wall during your training session and you get quite hungry. You might get a little bit hypoglycemic and you're like, okay, I really need to have my post-workout meal now. But if you can catch yourself before you fall and eat your meal, get to the gym sooner rather than later, get a good training session in, and then have that meal about three or four hours after your initial meal, you do feel much better compared to if you drag it out. But now because we've got more body fat on us and we are eating more calories too, we're just a hell of a lot more satiated. Yeah, I definitely find that. Like I could quite easily train fasted at the moment without any trouble and then compare that to comp prep and that would be a bit of a disaster. Yeah. (laughs) Mm. It's almost like digestion is a much higher priority. It's like when you're in a dieting phase and you put some food into yourself, it's like blood will rush immediately to your digestive system. It's like, yes, calories. It gets so excited and it wants to like absorb them and get that energy into you as quick as possible because you are in a lower energy available state. But when you're well fed and you're full of energy all the time, it's like, nah, I'm good. I'll delay that a little bit. Like, it's almost like it sits in your stomach for longer. It's Mm -hmm. very, very interesting. Like the rate of digestion and how much digestion is actually prioritized when your body recognizes, well, I've been deprived of calories for pretty chronic time period now compared to, no, I've been in a surplus for a number of months now. So I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. But that's Mm -hmm. why... I think that when you are in a dieting phase, it is really important to just be very strategic about your pre and your post-workout and just your meal timing in general so that you are well-nourished and well-satiated throughout the day and you can really support that training performance. But in the improvement season, man, like you can push it back a bit. Yeah, I think people have to understand. I think potentially they get worked up about the post-workout and pre-workout and how much fat I should consume. But ultimately we need to consider like, what is the purpose of the post-workout meal? It's not a magic window. It's a means of upregulating muscle protein synthesis and to start restoring some carbohydrates that you might've depleted throughout your workout. And resistance training itself for starters doesn't really deplete carbohydrate or Mm -hmm. glycogen stores that considerably. So mainly it comes down to the upregulation of muscle protein synthesis. So, And that's not very fancy. Like it doesn't have to be 
a five-star meal it can it can be a protein shake so mm. you're definitely correct in saying that as soon as you enter a deficit like we then have to maximize those variables even more because one like you you are going to have less glycogen available and two the risk of muscle loss in a deficit is much higher so it makes sense to maximize those nutritional variables more mm-hmm. yeah but like having a six hour window like that is a decent amount of time when you said you train at 8 a.m and you might have a pre-workout meal then you don't eat till 2 p.m mm. boy i i don't know anyone that is that busy that they couldn't get something into them within that six hour window a so mm. it's it's definitely is a window of opportunity you aren't just restricted to a 30 minute window right after you do your last bicep curl or calf raise mm. yeah and something that i haven't really mentioned for a while but people eating like directly or thinking that they have to eat directly as the workout finishes like your body is still in a sympathetic state at that point mm. and sympathetic sounds nice and nurturing but no it's it's the opposite in terms of our sympathetic nervous system so that's basically our fight or flight which is stimulated by exercise and what happens then is our blood gets diverted to our exercising muscles so skeletal muscle and basically to prioritize digestion we want to be in a parasympathetic state which is rest and digest Mm. and yeah so basically when you're exercising blood's at your muscles but we want our heart rate to come down after exercise so ideally waiting like half an hour after you exercise to achieve that parasympathetic nervous state and then eating like of course you can eat directly after but i would probably say direct digestion would be fully optimized waiting about half an hour Mm -hmm. definitely and i've thought about this before too like we know but how does our body actually know when we definitively stop exercising so for example i think it's corresponded with heart rate yeah yeah but what i mean is that like you and i will finish our training session at the gym we might finish with some abs or we might finish with some delts or whatever it is like technically the training session's over but then we walk home as well technically that's still a little bit of exercise too so it's not like we would be in that case of okay i've just finished my training session before i leave the gym i need to immediately down a protein shake Mm. sort of thing like technically the exercise bout actually hasn't ended yet (laughs) yeah i guess there's always nuances you can pick from things like that yeah certainly it is a hell of a lot more pleasant when you are in a relaxed more parasympathetic nervous system state to then sit down and enjoy a meal you don't want to still be sweating from your forehead heart absolutely pounding and you're trying to shovel food in for now it's actually a lot nicer like you and i walk home from the gym i know that i take a shower because it's just so ridiculously humid hot and sticky right now and then i'll have my lunch after which is really nice but i know that when i'm in a dieting phase i usually come home eat straight away and then i have a shower because i'm like i'm like okay i need to eat Mm. now i can't i can't delay this for another half an hour (laughs) yeah it's interesting there's i actually was listening to george osborne's podcast and he was saying there's two types of people people who wash their dishes before eating and people who wash them after and i think we're both examples of those two different people you'll always wash it after i'll always do it before even in a dieting phase i'll always wash everything before so then i just can eat and then when i eat i don't have to do any washing up afterwards (laughs) oh i know what you mean but what if like what if you have a hot meal waiting for you you don't want it to cool down 
well, it's not going to cool down significantly in two minutes. Okay. Okay. I don't know. I, I eat cheese on quite a few things and give that thing a few too many seconds. It's not melted anymore. It's mm. like that weird in-between crusty thing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's pretty good to wrap up here. But Jack, one thing that you learned this week. I'll let you start again. Okay, something I learned this week is that I've been getting ripped off, man, by tea bags. I uh, these past few months, I've actually fallen victim to the whole cold infusion tea thing, because I never know why I didn't question why normal tea bags aren't the same as these cold infusion tea bags, right? I've been drinking tea my whole life. I love the stuff, but in the summer, it's much nicer to have a big thing of cold tea rather than in the winter when you have a nice mug of hot tea i've fallen victim to buying these more expensive cold infusion tea bags which probably like 30 to 40 cents a bag but i ran out and what i actually tried doing this past week i was like i'm just gonna try it with a normal tea bag man so what i did was i just took one of my chai tea bags which is like infused with vanilla very nice added in some little sweetener drops, and then filled that whole thing up in a shaker with some cold water, put it in the fridge for a few hours. What do you know? I have cold chai tea, and it tastes just as good as those cold infusion tea bags. So I've learned that I got ripped off, but now I can save a bit of money. And if anything, the chai tea is actually nicer than like those fruity teas that I was having. Yeah, I've never been a big tea drinker myself Mm. or fruity teas. It's almost like my equivalent to diet drinks, Mm. I guess. Like I I just like it because one, it helps me stay really hydrated and it gives me that little bit of flavor in my water just with Mm. a tea bag. I've never been- No other reasons? You don't like hot teas? I love hot teas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it's too hot right now to have a hot tea. Again, I'll just be absolutely sweating. It's uh, ridiculously hot here in Australia right now. It's the humidity that gets you. (laughs) But other people, you know, they go for like diet soft drinks and all that sort of stuff. I've just never been the biggest fan. Like I don't really like the bubbles that much, but I really like just smooth tea. Mm. So yeah. Is the bubbles like, is that similar to not liking toothpaste? Do they hurt your tongue? Or? No, they don't hurt my tongue. I'm tough, man. I'm not that sensitive. I think bubbles in tea are very different to toothpaste. Okay, if you say so. <laughs> anyway, what did you learn this week? I learned that I won't ever be accidentally buying the dogs uh, grain-free dog food again because we learned that hard way as to why that's not particularly good for their digestion. <laughs> And what have been the signs of them having poor digestion as of late? Well, similar to humans, if you suddenly eliminate their, a lot of their dietary fiber and then expect things to go on as per usual, it, it won't go on as per usual. No, man, we've had a few whimpering dogs at night at the gate saying, please, (laughs) I don't want to do it inside. Please let me out. So sometimes our dogs, they whimper at the gate when we have a change in their kibble food Mm. and uh i wake up in the middle of the night and i open up the door and they sprint out and they go poo outside and then they come back in and um yeah that would be unpleasant it's a sign of respect from them because they're like i don't want to poo inside please let me out so i really respect that but when it's like 2 a.m in the morning and i'm like what the heck (laughs) what is this (laughs) Yeah, so fortunately we've changed dog food now and that seems to have solved the issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so canines and human beings 
perhaps grains are a good way to go, eh? Mm, for sure. <laughs> go, go the fiber, man. All right, well, I think that was a good podcast. If you guys enjoyed it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next week.